This morning sermon will be Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and verses 21 through 32. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness of God. Man and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them men when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. That's all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 990 years, he fathered Kina. Enosh lived after he fathered Kina 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 65 years, he followed Methuselah. Enosh walked with God after he followed Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah lived 187 years, he fathered Laman. Methuselah lived after he fathered Laman 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Methuselah were, 969 years, and he died. When Laman lived, had lived 182 years, he fathered his son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord God cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toes of our hands. Lament lived after he fathered Noah 585 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Lament were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. How do you approach a genealogy? I mean, when you, read, when you reach this passage in your scripture reading, what do you do? Do you just quickly read through it? Do you skim it? Do you skip it? Do you jump to the next part? Uh, do you find it as a, whew, this is a break, but I get this extra chapter in my reading plan, so I'm doing really well on the Bible reading? Uh, do you try to, like, give your kids to say the names and see how they can do with it? I mean, what do you do with a genealogy? You know, often when we approach it, we may find it to be considered one of the 
boring parts of the Bible, but we're going to see today that this genealogy is not a boring part of the Bible. And it's not something given to us just for factual knowledge, but rather embedded in this genealogy is a story. Embedded in this genealogy is an account of despair and hope. And as we walk through it today, I hope that you will be able to see this story and you will find your heart swelling with hope and approach this genealogy much different after today. So for context, where we are in the book of Genesis, we've had the creation account where God displays His glory and wonder in bringing about creation. He brings about His wonder and glory in the creation of man and woman. We see that the garden was luscious, prepared for them. They could enjoy all of the things that God had made for them except for one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we see that they wanted to be God, Adam and Eve, and they disobeyed God and they did what was right in their own sight and they ate of the fruit and from that came sin. And then as Daniel preached last week, we saw the effects of this sin and how quickly it sped up in the life of Cain and how Cain was jealous of his brother Abel and how he took advantage of him and killed him and murdered him, his own flesh and blood, his own brother. And we see quickly in Genesis 4 the effects and ramifications of sin and how it moves so rapidly within the human heart and brings about chaos and destruction or wrecks havoc. But we also see in Genesis 4 a line, a line of Cain that comes in. And from that line and of his descendants, it uh, culminates in Lamech, who boasts in his sin, who boasts in his uh, ability to when a young man strikes him, he will then kill him, who boasts in his sin and his power. And that is where Genesis 4 ends with this genealogy of Cain and of his descendants and of them boasting in their sin. And Genesis 5 comes onto the scene to offer a pause, to offer a recalibration, if you will. And so in verses 1 and 2, it says this, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now these verses are significant. Moses is going to take this pause here after we've just been hit with the truth and reality of sin and the murder of Abel, we see that the image of God, although marred by sin, is not lost by sin. We see that Moses will continue to say that the male and female were created by him in his image, that man and women have value and dignity. And that's picked up even in Genesis 9. When Noah, after the flood, uh, God tells him that man shall not shed another man's blood for he is in the image of God. So the value and dignity of human life continues even after the fall. But what we have here is an account of God creating, God using a new line. See, when Genesis 4 stops, it stops with, but Seth was born, Seth was appointed. And so when, when uh, Moses starts here in Genesis 5, he will start with Adam and the creation. So in verse 3, it says this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, <clears throat> 
when we approach this genealogy, there's a couple things we can learn from it. It has a pattern to it. One, one of the patterns is, is that it will name the individual who was uh, born or who was created, the firstborn, and then it will then go on to say how long they lived until they had a child. And some of you are going to be quite impressed by the ages of some of these folks when they had children. It was, I'm not even going to tackle that today. Um, but they were having, when they would have the children, they have the firstborn, it was listed there, and then it would say how many years they lived after the firstborn, and then it would say, and they died. Now, when we're approaching a genealogy, there's a, there's a couple things I want us to take away before we hop into what this story is. Uh, one of them is the historicity of the Bible. It's important that when they are naming, when Moses is naming Adam and Seth, and he's going down this line, these are not mythological characters. These are not folks that are equal to Harry Potter or to Frodo. These are real human beings who lived in time and space. They walked on this earth. They drank water. They ate food. They are real people. The Bible is giving us a historical account. But the Bible is not primarily concerned with a historical account in the sense of written for historians to comb through. Uh, many folks have stumbled and fallen trying to use this genealogy and the age of these men to try to figure out the age of the earth. That's not what Moses is going after because there's overlapping times between these men. It would be impossible to use it to trace the time. That's not what Moses is going after. You see, God uses history, but he also is the sovereign one over history who is working history to accomplish his purposes. So the history that we read has theological undercurrents. It has a theological grounding to it so that it's both historical they are real but it's also has a deeper meaning than just knowing who these people are so we hold those two things in tension when we approach it but it should give us confidence about the accuracy of the bible that when it speaks we can trust it this isn't just a myth or some fairy tale we're studying but the second thing about a genealogy that we see here is that notice the personal nature of god did you see in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, God knew his name and he knew how long he lived. He knew when he had his first son. And it says the same for each one of these. He would give their name, he knows them, and he also knows how long they live. God is not a distant God who creates and then steps back and sits on his rocking chair. Rather, he's the God who creates, but he's actively involved in history, knowing the names of every human. But not only the names, knowing the days and years. He has numbered our days. We all have a number attached to us. And each one of these folks, they didn't die too early and they didn't die too late. They died exactly when God had determined for them to die. He has numbered their days. So it gives us a pause here, just when we're looking at this genealogy, a couple things out of the gate to just stow away the next time you come approach a genealogy is the historicity and the personal nature of God. But let's see what the story is that's here in Genesis 5. It says, When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And then it talks about Kenan. Kenan was 910 years, and he died. Mahalalah, he had lived 895 years, and he died. Jared had lived 962 years, and he died. 
your ears should be picking up something in this text, a repetition that's happening over and over again. One word in the Hebrew, and he died, and he died, and he died. Eight times in this passage, it lays out, he died. Now, when we're reading this, we see that this is, this is not a surprise. God had told Adam and Eve that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you shall die. You will die. Death does not happen by natural causes. Now, we may determine when someone in old age, we may say that they've died of natural causes, but we should always remember that death was never the way it was supposed to be. Even this account in the genealogy, uh, Methuselah, who lives the longest, he doesn't even make it a thousand years. And the psalmist tells us that uh, one day in the presence of the Lord is like a thousand years. God is the one who is eternal. We are finite. And yet, here this text reminds us over and over again, and he died, and he died. How do you view death? Like when you hear this account of an individual named, they live so long, they have a child, and then they die. Do you start to think about your own self? What will be on your obituary? Born in 1972, had this many kids, did this and that. And then he died. Like it's, it's brief. When you think about your death, what stirs within your soul? Is it, is it fear? Is it fear of missing out on life? Not being able to watch your children or your grandchildren grow up? Fear of missing out on time with your spouse? Fear of uh, no longer enjoying walks with friends? Fear of... Uh, laughter and no longer enjoying the good gifts that God has given us? You will have those things no more? Or is it the fear of pain? When you think about death, will it be painful? Will it be worse than anything you've ever experienced? You see, when studying this text and we think about death, I think we can be driven just to the physical act of death, the cessation of life. But I think there's something far more going on here. When we recount this story, death is not just the cessation of life, but death is the picture. It is the culmination of the effects of our sin. It is the realized outcome of our disobedience of God. You can see, at death, we are reminded of our sin and we are separated from Him. Our alienation becomes real. God gives us this picture of death as a sign to remind us of its finality. Have you ever been at the presence of a loved one when they pass away? And the, the inevitability and the, the inability to be able to bring them back to life. There's, there's no way to, to talk to them again. There's no way to hear them laugh. It all starts to seem like it's so distant already. There's no way to... Uh, have conversations with them or circle back on something you wanted to say, they're gone. The body is there, but there's no way to bring life to it. The finality of it is jarring. You see, when we approach death and we think of it merely as just the physical, I think we're missing what Jesus taught. When Jesus was teaching in Matthew 10.28, He said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, death 
not just the physical cessation of life, but the reality of the spiritual thing, the internal heart that's full of decay and sin, when it breathes its last and takes on that judgment of God, there's an accountability there before the one who can destroy both the body and the soul. It is weighty. The physical is just a slight, slight picture of the weightiness of the spiritual reality of our relationship with God. And death is it's unstoppable. In this account, they live and they die and they die and they die. You can't stop it. And you, no IQ can stop it. No wisdom, no wit, no beauty, no smarts, no type of people group, no generation, no technology, no science or health, no money. Nothing can stop death. As Paul wrote in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Billionaires are, in Silicon Valley are trying to spend money upon money upon money to solve the problem of death. And let's just say maybe they're able to figure out how to get us to 200, 300, 400 years. Let's just say. Not going to happen, but let's just say they're able to do it they still would not be able to solve the problem of what death represents, and that's the spiritual condition of our hearts. They still will not be able to stop sin, and we will still be living in this ecclesiastical world of sin and ruin and vanity. Now, for the unbeliever here, this may sound a bit bizarre to you to be saying that death is ultimately the result of a rebellion against God, that it's the outworking of a spiritual theological problem rather than a biological function. To that unbeliever, <clears throat> death, when we are living our lives, seems so distant. As Tom said recently in one sermon, it, it's, always, it's in the corner lurking, but it's only sometimes at a funeral that it's right in front of us. And for the unbeliever, often we can live our lives as if death is distant and we can hide it. Because see, God gives to all a certain amount of grace, what we would call common grace. Uh, Jesus taught, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So what am I talking about for the unbeliever? Well, God in his graciousness, when we are living and breathing and having life, he gives us all common graces for the believer and the unbeliever. The rain falls on both. The sun shines on both. Both the believer and unbeliever can enjoy birthdays. They can laugh. They can enjoy good food, weddings, and dancing, and walks through nature. See, they have these common graces ever before them. But it's at the moment when we die that you come into the full realization when those common graces are stripped away and you stand before a holy and just God. You recognize your alienation from Him, your torn relationship with Him. Death removes that veneer. And so for the unbeliever, there's a warning. A warning of these things in life that I am enjoying. What am I truly trusting in? What is my spiritual condition? This account of despair, of death after death after death, should leave us a bit overwhelmed. You know, it should give us pause because when we're reading this account, this is supposed to be the account of the line of promise. This is when in the beginning, when after Adam and Eve had sinned, God gave a promise that he would put enmity between the woman and the serpent, but eventually one would come from the woman who would crush the serpent. The serpent representing sin and death and Satan himself, one would come who would defeat him. 
And in Genesis 4, Cain's line's not that, clearly, with the effects of what they're doing and Lamech boasting. So this is an account of the promise line. Moses is causing the pause here of saying, hey, the line is going to continue through Adam and Seth. This is the line that we're looking to to see will the Messiah come, the one who will crush the firstborn. And so there's a pause here of, where is he? Where's our hope in this account of despair with so much sin and death? Well, we're going to move to the hope part now. It's an account of despair, an account of hope, but put a little asterisk here. This is a glimmer of hope, just a glimmer of hope. Look with me in verses 21 through 24 when we get to Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Here's some hope. Here is one who is walking with God. Now, to walk with God, one commentator says, it's the sense of a walk in its verbal stem indicates a communion or an intimacy with God. It is reminiscent of Adam's initial experience in the garden. It should Hearken us back to when God would walk in the cool of the day in the garden, when he was walking in fellowship with Adam and Eve. Enoch walked in communion with God. And, and Hebrews picks up what Enoch was doing um, in the sense that Enoch walked by faith. He trusted in God. He had a relationship with God. And because of his relationship with God, we have this odd account here in the Scriptures that it says he was not, for God took him. What does that mean? What it says. He was not, for God took him. You can't go find a body. Uh, it was like with Elijah, where they came, one moment he's living, and the next moment the chariots come, and he's taken into the presence of God. It's uh, this idea of he was translated over. He, there's no body to go back to. He just literally went from this life into the presence of the Lord, just like that, because he walked with God. And we also have an account here Later on, in verse, look with me in verses 28 through 29. It says this, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toll of our hands. So Enoch stands as hope for us because Enoch walked with God and he was translated from death. He entered into the presence of God. And then Lamech here has hope in Noah that Noah would be one who would deliver the people from the curse of the ground. He would save them. And so when we get to this passage of, and he died, and he died, and he died, there's this bit of hope that, wait, no, in the line of promise, there are those who are walking with God. There are those who are being faithful to God. And there, there may even be in Noah, as it says of Noah later on, that he walked with God. He was a righteous man. He found favor with God. So there's this glimmer of hope in a sea of despair, of death upon death, that wait, no, maybe these are the fulfillment of the promise. Maybe these guys will help stop it. But notice, I said it's a glimmer of hope. It's not actualized hope. And, and why would I say Enoch and Noah are just glimmers of hope and not actualized hope? Because Enoch, when he was translated up, he still had a son, Methuselah. And guess what? Methuselah died. And Methuselah's son died. And guess what? Noah, he had a son. And they died. And guess what? Noah, he disobeyed God and engaged in sin, even though 
He had walked with God. The curse still continues. All of these folks listed here, it's this account in Genesis 5 is a story of longing for will the curse be relieved? What firstborn son will come? Now, just to be clear, when I was talking about the personal nature of God, some of you may have thought, well, this is nice if you're you know, a male and if you're a firstborn son, you feel like God knows you, but what about the women? Like he just says other sons and daughters. Is the Bible misogynistic? No. There's a theological point to every name listed. And the theological point is, this is the firstborn son. This is the firstborn son. Why, why are we looking for the firstborn son? Because the firstborn son would be the one who would do what Adam could not do. He would be the one who would fulfill the promise. Because see, all the ones listed so far, they can't stop sin and death. They can't stop it. And this genealogy, in my opinion, is begging, begging for us to find the firstborn who completes it. And I'm glad you asked who that was. In the New Testament, there's two genealogies. There's one in Matthew, and there's one in Luke. Now, the one in Matthew literally starts with the same language we have here in Genesis 5. This is the book of the generations. It's only used a couple times in the Old Testament. Once in Genesis 2-4, and once here. And then the only other time it's picked back up is in Matthew's genealogy when he starts at the very beginning of the book, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. A clear echo, a clear, hey, I'm pointing back. Here's the promised one. Here's the Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3.15 who would crush the head of the serpent. And Matthew's account follows uh, Jesus' lineage uh, from David to Abraham, tracing him all the way back. But I want us to go to Luke's account. So if you have your Bible, flip all the way to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. And I want you to see something. And I want us to see where this is sandwiched in between and why I think this is important. So in Luke's Gospel, <clears throat> Luke chapter 3, before we get to the genealogy, there's this account in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. This is at Jesus' baptism. It says in verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on him, on Jesus, in bodily form like a dove, and a, a dove, and a voice came from heaven. And look at what God the Father says to Jesus. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God is declaring, You are my Son. With you I am pleased. And then what follows it? The genealogy. A genealogy tracing Jesus' line all the way back to who? Son of Enos, the son of Seth, and the son of Adam, the son of God. So you have God declaring you are my son. You have a genealogy showing the line all the way back to Adam, the son of God. And then right after that, interestingly enough, you have the temptation. You have the temptation of Christ where he is not in a garden, not with a full stomach, but rather he's in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days. And on the last day of his fasting, he's approached by Satan. And on the last day of that fasting, when he's approached by Satan, Satan tempts him with every temptation, challenging him, trying to tempt him and deceive him to move into sin and to doubt the goodness of God. And we see in this account, Luke is setting up, you're my son, here's the genealogy, and then here in the wilderness is the one who does what Adam never could do who does what a firstborn son never could do. And that is to defeat Satan. He did not give in when he had everything working against him. Jesus Christ 
is the true Son of God. This account of the temptation of Christ, it's, I love what Ed Clowney says. He says, Christ's temptation was not endured primarily in order to give us an example of how we should deal with temptation. There are things in there that do that, but it's not primarily for that. The temptations Satan used to assault Jesus were surely not the temptations he would use for already fallen sinners. Certainly, Satan does not find it necessary to offer all the kingdoms of the world to the average sinner. He can buy most sinners for small change. Nor does Satan tempt us to test our powers to work miracles. No, Satan's temptations of Jesus were directed at his consciousness that he was the divine son and that he had come to do his father's will. Satan aimed to cause Jesus to doubt the goodness of God. You see, Jesus is the true son of God. He's the true firstborn who's the answer to this genealogy in Genesis 5. This begging of the question, who will come and defeat the serpent? Who will come and defeat sin and death? And Luke gives it right there very clearly, this one who doesn't fall into temptation, this one who defeated all temptation, who was righteous in every way. He was perfect before the Father. He loved Him perfectly. He was an obedient son. And He was an obedient son not just in the temptation, but He was an obedient son even to the point of death. He laid down his life. These men in Genesis 5, they die on their own accord. Jesus comes willingly and lays down his life to purchase sinners, to reconcile us to God. He comes as the great son, the one who did what we could never do. He accomplished for us salvation through his life, sacrificial atonement, and his resurrection. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is good news. Jesus Christ did what I could never do. He was the faithful firstborn son. When if if I would have tried to walk it out, I would have done just like Adam over and over again. So what do we do with that? How do we handle this good news? This completion of the genealogy, this fulfillment of the story, not a glimmer of hope, but the realized hope in Jesus Christ. Well, first off, we need to recognize if you're an observant person, you may be sitting back and saying, well, you know, Enoch, he walked with God and he died and he still got to go be with God. Noah was righteous. He found favor with God. I mean, why did Jesus need to come? It seemed like you could walk with God and then you're with him. Well, glad you asked. Old Testament saints, they were saved by faith in the promised one. They were saved by faith in the coming Messiah. They were not saved by their own works, or their own righteousness, for there's only one way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the Old Testament saints, they didn't get to heaven through something else. They got to heaven. They didn't know his name all the way. They didn't know all the things we know, but they got to heaven because they had faith in the promised one. 
which when they're quoting uh, Enoch and his faith in God in Hebrews 11, remember Hebrews 11 starts with, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their condemnation. Their, not condemnation, whew, commendation. That, that, was, <clears throat> that was a real bad slip. <clears throat> Let me be clear, they received not their condemnation, their commendation. That was not an intended joke either. Uh, my jokes are bad enough. So, the Old Testament saints are saved by their faith in Christ. And so, you say, okay, well, they were saved by their faith in Christ. So that's why it matters. That's why it matters that Jesus Christ came. Because if He didn't come, then this cycle in Genesis 5 would just continue over and over and over again. Enoch and Noah, their righteousness wouldn't matter if Christ didn't come. Christ had to come to fulfill the promise of God, to defeat the curse. So now you say, well, I look at us as believers and we still die. We still have funerals we go to. How do I know that Jesus is the firstborn son? How do I know he's actually defeated this curse? He was raised three days later. And all of those who believe in him, you can believe and trust that nothing can separate you from the love of God. The Bible doesn't run from the fact that believers right now will die. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And just as God was faithful to promise that he would send one who would crush the serpent, he is faithful in that Jesus will come back and he'll make all things new. The dead will be raised to life. So although believers, yes, we still die right now, we can have great confidence that when we die, we'll be in his presence. Nothing will separate us from his love. So for the unbeliever, you have a challenge before you. What will you do with this firstborn son? Will you trust in him? Will you see him as good? Will you see him as your only way of being right before God? Not to wait for when death removes the veneer of common graces and you stand before God naked and in all of your filth and shame with no excuses to offer. This Sunday, as we <clears throat> prepare for the table and want to orient our minds around it, one of the things that's good news about Jesus Christ being the Son of God in our place is that for us struggling Christians, for us struggling saints, this is good news that Jesus was a firstborn Son for us. For those of us who feel like we are always striving to earn God's favor, always working to try to make Him love us more. We look to Christ. We look to this table. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. When we partake of it, we don't say, I'm taking half the body and then I'll add my other half. No, we, we take it all for we need all of Christ to cover us. For those who have fallen into sin this past month, who have stumbled and said things and sinned against neighbors, and went and engaged in things that you never thought you would do, or things you thought you've conquered. We look to Christ, the firstborn Son, who was perfect for us. And we trust that because He was perfect for us, God adopts us as sons and daughters, and we never lose that adoption because of Christ. He is great and good. So for the believer, let this good news saturate and marinate within your heart that God loves you, not based on your righteousness, but based on Christ. And that's what the table represents. 
Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember, Lamech thought Noah would provide people rest. It's not Noah who would bring the rest. It's Christ. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul warns Christians in 1 Corinthians 11 not to come to the table in an unworthy manner, and that he or she ought to examine himself for anyone who comes without recognizing the body of our Lord, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Consider these words from Paul as a warning before we partake of the table. We think it better to pass than to ignore this warning. But for those of us who are aware of our sin and trust in the Lord Jesus, for those of us aware of the darkness in which you once lived, overwhelmed with the grace of God in Jesus, and whose trust rests only in Jesus Christ for salvation and acceptance with God, come, enjoy. For those who are baptized knowing that being united with Him in death means we will be raised with Him in life, come and enjoy His grace. And for those seeking to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, repenting, confessing, and enjoying the grace of God, pursuing peace in all relationships, even at the need of giving up rightness, come and enjoy. And for those who do not come because you are still searching or perhaps still struggling with sin, take this time to consider your life, the struggles, the sorrow, and all your attempts that you have failed at fixing yourself and look to Christ who was perfect for you. Take this time and consider God's grace through faith in Jesus and His words of comfort and His call to repentance and His offer of peace and joy. So I ask you to take a moment to consider these things and then we'll pray.